So we went deeper and deeper and we kept going further out. And we soon realized that uh, when we came to some big rocks, um, we, we realized that the, all the sea anemones, which we normally see in daylight, were also completely baffled. They illuminated like a box of jewels. Red, blues, yellows, greens, oranges, purples. It was fascinating. A whole face of a rock side covered in these multiple colours of beautiful underwater jewels. Aquanaut. My adventures and misadventures in the early days of scuba diving off the Cornish coast. Written and read by me, James Wheeler. Before launching into my pro diving, it's just a quick one I think you might be interested in um, to do with club dives. Uh, I did several night dives and of course this is quite different from an ordinary daylight dive. And uh, I did several within the club and one, the, the one you always remember of course is the first one you ever do. And um, I did this with Ray Dennis within the summer, um, uh, late in the evening, and we got into the water off Foskelly Beach in Newlyn, fully kitted out with some powerful torches. And off we set uh, from shallow depths, working our way out deeper and deeper and deeper in, into the sea. And um, the first thing I ought to tell you is that if you're claustrophobic, don't attempt this because you're in total darkness and if you switch the torch off well that's it yeah you could be in the abyss because there's no light at all coming from the surface so we set off with our powerful torches from Muscadi Beach and we must have gone a good 50 yards out and it was such a wonderful sight the first thing that struck us was the reflection of millions of plankton reflecting the light in, from, the, from the torch and it was as thick as pea soup at times and uh, you could almost feel as though you could put your hand through this plankton of soup and, and work your way through it and then we came across cuttlefish and uh, they're like small squid and they of course have this uh, ability to change colour for camouflage during the course of the day. And of course, in the night, they were completely puzzled by this light. They obviously hadn't seen artificial light before. And their eyes seemed to roll, and their colours changed so many times in trying to adjust to the different light uh, shade and so forth. And uh, the colours were absolutely beautiful. Reds, blues, greens, yellows, orange. It was just beautiful. And the fins around the edge of the of the of the back like waves in the sea and they were pure white and it was such a beautiful sight these small cuttlefish squid like creatures i'd seen them before on daylight dives of course but at night these poor creatures were completely baffled by the torchlight so we went deeper and deeper and we kept going further out and we soon realized that uh, 
when we came to the, some some big rocks, um, we we realised that the all the seeing enemies, which we normally see in daylight, were also completely baffled. They illuminated like a box of jewels. Red, blues, yellows, greens, oranges, purples. It was fascinating. A whole face of a rock side covered in these multiple colours of beautiful underwater jewels. I shall never forget it. And I experienced it again on another night dive, of course. Because once you've done one, you want to do another. Because it's such a beautiful sight. We also came across some fish. And the fish we, we saw, of course, were common fish, which we see doing daylight dives in the bay, and they're called cuckoo ass. And they are, in the daylight, and a lot on a day dive, they are blue, bright blue, orange, and some, some green on the tips of the tails, and lovely big round eyes with blue rings around them, yellow rings around them. And we came across them, of course, between the rocks, and the same thing happened. They illuminated in such a fluorescent uh, um, colour. It was absolutely astonishing. And, of course, some of them came right up to the light, the torch, because they were mystified and couldn't think what it was. And they must have clearly had never experienced divers before with, with, with flashlights. So it was a wonderful experience, and one which I encountered... Um, several times, um, and it, with with a similar with a similar um, kind of animals that we saw, but on the last part of this dive, um, we we did make the point of going at that high tide, and it would be slack water. So what happens at night? Um, the fish tend to feed at night because the, with the slack water they can swim easier and gather the plankton against swimming any of the tide. And of course, the most common fish that does hunt at night is the conger eel. And these can go up to six or seven or eight feet long. And on this particular night, we were just about to turn around and work our way back, back to the beach in a direction which we thought was the beach because we had no idea where we were and uh, we realised we'd have to surface because we wouldn't know the direction back to the beach because of the total darkness around us. Uh, and we came across this conga, and the conga eel was only about three feet long, but he was so interested in the light, he didn't know what to make of it, and the poor chap was completely puzzled. And I shall never forget that. So Ray and I, Ray and Dennis and I surfaced, and we found ourselves about 60 yards out from the beach, and we, we, we snorkeled back, um, uh, and not, no need to use our air bottles now on the surface. And snorkeling back was another fantastic sight because we kept the torches on and we were making a track of white, effervescent uh, uh, trail behind us and on the side of us as a plankton was reflecting the light. It was absolutely fascinating, an experience which I'll never forget. So I thought I'd bring that in at this point because it was such a wonderful experience and if you ever get a chance to do it, providing, of course, you don't suffer from claustrophobia. And if you're going to be a diver, I think you better forget diving anyway if you suffer from claustrophobia. So that was my first and most interesting night dive.
Uh, so now the move to more adventurous stories and the tr transition we made from club diving to salvage diving. Firstly then, we obviously realised that we had to acquire a proper dive boat, large enough to undertake salvage. We looked at so many boats for sale and eventually it was Bob Carswell who discovered the ideal craft. It turned out to be an ex-naval pinnace being 35 feet long with a width of 11 feet, a beam of 11 feet and she weighed about three tons. She was built around 1955-56 and I must say when we, when we looked over her she was beautifully constructed like all Ministry of Defence vessels and she had been lying in the harbour at Milo for some time. We checked her over and found she had a lot of seaweed growing under the hull. So the first task, having bought, bought her, was to dive beneath the boat and scrape all the weed off. And this we did one weekend. It was hard work, I can tell you, diving upside down, scraping off the seaweed. You had to do this, of course, so the drag of the seaweed would slow the boat down considerably. Well, she was originally called Corval, C-O-R-V-A-L, and we have no idea why she was called that, but we decided to rename her because at that time there were so many moonshots going on and satellites going up that we thought we might re rename her Aquanaut instead of Astronaut. <laughs> it seemed very appropriate at the time because astronauts were going into the unknown in space and we felt we would be going to the unknown under the sea. Strangely enough, she had an old petrol paraffin engine um, and uh, she was a Kelvin engine, which was pretty ancient, and she ran on petrol and paraffin. And uh, it was pretty ancient, so we realised at the time that the first thing we must do was take the old engine out and replace it with a new diesel at a later date. So the time came for Corval to get to Newlin, and that meant taking a long route from Myla towards the Lizard, rounding the Lizard Point, and then striking out to Mounts Bay to our home port at Newlin in Penzance. Well, it took a long time, and it was Raymond, Damis, Bob and myself all day. Uh, we, we set out from Myla with this engine which we prayed would be reliable, and get us that long journey. It would be set out very early one morning on a on a Sunday, and uh, I tell you, I was very glad to round the lizard because that's where the manacles are. We stayed well clear of that and uh, wide of that, and made our way round the lizard peninsula across the bay into Mount's Bay. It was a most peculiar setup. Um, the old engine was running on petrol and paraffin, and what you had to do was unscrew a large iron screw at the top of each of the four cylinders, prime the cylinder with petrol, screw the head back on again, and when the engine got hot enough, you switched it over to paraffin. And uh, <laughs> we had two tanks on board, a paraffin tank and a petrol tank at the stern of the boat, which had been well fixed in. And clearly it was a, a very cheap method of running this old engine. But my goodness, wouldn't it go well? And we, we steamed around the bay, into, into Mount's Bay, and got there just before dusk 
uh, in the evening and the engine really did us proud. Uh, also, I should mention that on the stern of the boat was a, a, a cabin with a wheel, a wheelhouse in it for the steering and uh, a, a quite a, a mast about 20 feet high and we realised that we had to get rid of the cabin if we were going to turn it into a, into a dive boat. Well, I'll not go into the details of the work we carried out on the Aquanaut, but we had to change her quite considerably to make her into an efficient workboat. And in short, um, we put new engine in. We bought two new diesel engines, one to replace every summer because when, when the winter comes, you do less diving. So the idea is to change the engine in the winter when you're doing less diving so the diesel can be serviced. We knocked down the cabin, and uh, I have to say that credit should go to Ray Dennis, who was a master at this work, and he constructed a beautiful cabin up forward with a galley, with a proper stove and cooking facilities, and a toilet right up in the barrel. And later, of course, it was necessary, not too far later down the line, we had to install a hydraulic winch so we could lift scrap metal off the seabed. So now we had a sturdy dive boat with which we could uh, venture anywhere along the coast and go further afield with a view, of course, of doing salvage work. Incidentally, I believe I mentioned earlier that uh, when we were club diving, we had seen masses of copper pipe, gunmetal and brass fittings all over the shipwrecks that we, we dived on. And of course, this is classified as semi-precious metal and had considerable scrap value. I seem to remember that scrap copper at the time was fetching £50 a hundredweight, while in today's language that means about £50 for uh, 50 kilos. But of course, it's today's prices I've discovered since, it's five times that much. So the, the value of copper since then has increased immensely. But at that time, to us, a hundredweight of scrap copper was well worth lifting. So that was our next task, to find enough of this scrap metal so we could make some money. Um, so Aquanaut, once established and running well, we were quick to venture off along the coast in search for shipwrecks. It was a very exciting time and one which would lead me into some tricky situations, which fortunately I survived. Well, now we had Aquanaut, of course, it seemed sensible to approach the, uh, the subject with diving on wrecks that, that we already knew where they were, instead of spending a lot of time searching for them. And the first one I recall we dived on was the Belgian trawler, the Verge Marie, which sank near Tatadou Lighthouse in 1937. It was a tragic loss of life, by the way, and uh, a lot of wrecks were locked 
were lost on the Tatadu area, and that is why much later uh, they built a lighthouse there, one of the newest lighthouses in Cornwall. Tatadu, strange name, I'm not sure what it means actually. Well, we found our way out to Tatadu, and um, the problem was, of course, we could not get Aquanaut. She had a draft of about six, six feet, and we couldn't really get a close inshore to where the, the wreck was. So we always had a, a spare rubber dinghy, which we bought. And the idea was to anchor just off the, the wreck and then to, to row in, kit it up in the inflatable dinghy, throw an anchor over, a small anchor over, and then dive on the wreck. Well, that was something to see. There was so much scrap metal around. My eyes were popping out. Copper pipe, brass fittings, a propeller, a bronze propeller. All this was there looking at me. And Bob and I looked at each other and we thought, well, this is going to be our first attempt to get this stuff up. The snag was, of course, we couldn't get it into the, directly into Aquanaut. So we had to, to, to get it up and fix it in such a way that we could put it into the inflatable without damaging the inflatable and, <laughs> and puncturing it. And some of the copper pipe was able to be able to work loose. We were only diving in about 15 feet of water. And um, it was difficult to keep, keep buoyancy at that level. Um, we had to keep pulling ourselves down because we kept floating back to the surface at that shallow depth. I might add, it seems easier to salvage at depth than it is at shallow water because you can stay permanently in one position. We had to hold ourselves to the to the wreckage as we pulled off this copper pipe. And uh, I remember Bob went up to the surface and rode back to get two hacksaws. And that was the next stage of going down and cutting copper pipe and brass fittings freed from copper pipe because they were heavy. And we actually filled the inflatable dinghy with as much pipe and brass fittings and valves and things which we could possibly uh, do in one in one day. It took us a long time. We at 15 feet, we could stay down all day because we had, I think I had, uh, uh, Bob had 100 cubic feet of air. I had about 75 to 80 cubic feet. So we could stay down at that depth all day. The only problem was, of course, the old problem of the cold. And it did get cold towards the end. So that was our first deal. We got back to the boat, pulling, rowing back on top, sitting on top of this scrap metal and getting back to Aquanaut and no deal on Aquanaut. And of course, uh, <laughs> it hadn't occurred to us before that uh, we hadn't checked out the legality of all this. Because according to the law of the sea, all divers who undertake salvage work have to declare it to the receiver of wreck. And the receiver of wreck works in conjunction with the Coast Guard. And of course, the Coast Guard are watching people, what they're diving on and where their boats are all the time off the coast of Cornwall. So we didn't, didn't occur to us that we're going back with a boat loaded of scrap metal. What the hell are we going to do with it? Without receiving, going to see the receiver of wreck. This meant, of course, that the receiver of wreck would probably have to determine 
who the, the initial trawler, in this case the Virgin Marie, actually belonged to, who she was insured by, who covered the insurance, who would want to claim some of the salvage. And so we decided to keep our mouths shut and say absolutely nothing. And uh, I remember poor old Raymond, he was getting a bit uh, worried that we'd be spotted bringing all this salvage ashore at Newland Harbour and then being discovered for being wreckers and not um, declaring it. So that was our first dive, uh, with our first scrap dive on the Virgin Marie and the Belgian trawler in the early 60s. The next dive we went on to do salvage was the wreck of the Juan Ferrer. And she was a Spanish, small Spanish coaster that sank uh, off uh, Carnboscowan in 1963. Uh, she lay on her side, I remember, when she went in because we went over there to see her from the cliff, uh, I remember, as, uh, at the time she went in. And um, so we knew exactly where she was. and. Uh, we decided to scrap on that. Well, uh, that was interesting. We had to do the same thing. We couldn't get the boat Aquanaut close enough to her. So we had to anchor just off the coast and then go in with the inflatable and dive as we did on, on the, uh, the Virgin Marie, which I've just discussed with you. And uh, it was a little bit disappointing because the... Virgin Marie was built in 1937 and she had a lot of copper pipe. While the Duan Ferrer, the Spanish coaster, had more stainless steel pipe. And of course it wasn't quite so valuable. So we had we had a shuffle around between the plates and uh, we did find the propeller, but the propeller was was too big, we couldn't possibly lift that. And it was at that time, uh, later, that Bob had mentioned the point that if we're going to lift propellers, we're going to have to move into more adventurous diving and more adventurous salvage to start thinking about explosives. And uh, at this point, that, that wasn't even a matter to be considered. So we took lots of scrap off the Iran for a while, and it was just a shame that this propeller was looking at us there in phosphor bronze and uh, the value of that was even more pricey than copper. And uh, at this point, it's worth mentioning that when the, the price of copper was such that uh, it was a hundredweight of copper or 50 kilos in today's uh, scale of things, it about, was about 15, the average wage of most people was about 10 to 15 pounds a week. So, you know, 50 pounds or more of copper and scrap gunmetal and phosphor bronze was really worth having. So we did take quite a lot off to run for her, um, but we didn't spend so much time there because we were handicapped. And the handicap is, of course, the same problem that is always present along the Cornish coast, and it is the problem of ground sea. Now, without going into the technical details of, of, of ocean movement, what basically happens is that when the movement of the, of the sea comes rolling in, it, it operates and turns in, in a circular movement. And as the seabed it diminishes in depth, 
these circular movements get higher and higher because the seabed's rising and you get these enormous ground seas where the whole sea is suddenly lifted up and you're lifted with it. You have absolutely no choice of trying to avoid it. The only way you can is to hang on for grim death uh, while the ground sea lifts you up and hang on to some wreckage. So salvaging the Yuan Fuhrer, I recall very clearly, was very difficult because of heavy ground sea. And uh, I think this was our only, uh, one and only dive on Yuan Fuhrer for that very reason. Um, incidentally, we had the problem on the Virgin Marie, which I talked about earlier, but it wasn't quite so bad that day. Some days it can be much, much uh, more, more difficult when the ground sea uh, it gets very, very heavy. So it is a worry when shallow diving. It's a, a ground sea is not a problem when you're diving at depth because it's above your head. But when you're in shallow diving in 20 feet of water or less, um, it is a hazard, a real hazard. And if you don't grab onto something, it will take you and carry you onto the rock or onto the shore or against the wreck and you smash your head on and damage all your bottle and your diving equipment. So we had to hang on for grim death while trying to salvage the Yuan Fuhrer. So that was our second scrap dive and uh, I'll come on to some more later. My next salvage dive um, experience was on the Heliops, our next salvage operation. Uh, you will recall, of course, that um, we have mentioned the Heliops before on club dives. We dived on them many times. And um, this time, of course, the approach was to be completely different. And uh, that is what I want to talk about. The first consideration we had to seriously uh, uh, calculate was, of course, the depth. And uh, she lay between 80 and 90 feet. And I believe it was high water when we went. She might have been just over 90 feet can't recall exactly, but uh, clearly we were going to get into decompression time, and uh, this comes as a, ma a major difference, of course, in the salvage operation that we were to carry out on the on the wreck. So we motored out in Aquanaut to find the Heliops, and uh, mark the marks were clearly in Bob's head, and he knew exactly where to drop the anchor. It's quite a choppy day, I remember. And Bob was dead right. He dropped that heavy anchor and chain and thick nylon rope of the anchor straight into the belly of the wreck. And uh, so we decided that um, Bob would die first with a hacksaw attached to his belt. And the plan was for Bob to cut uh, the, the, the copper pipe and for me to come down later and collect it all together and we pull it up to the surface with Bob and I adjusting it so it wouldn't get lost and Raymond pulling it by hand on the boat. Now I've got to pause here for a very good reason because I said this was going to be a new approach and it was. And the first thing of course was that we were diving alone. Bob dived alone and this was of course breaking all club rules and I think probably the first time that Bob had dived alone at depth. I'm not sure. I'm going to have to ask him. 
but certainly uh, that was the first hazard which didn't occur to me at the time certainly didn't seem to occur to Bob because you know as I said before when you see copper pipe you don't see copper pipe you see pound notes in front of your face or five ten pound notes and you don't even consider the hazards you don't even consider the dangers when you're young you just see the five pound notes stacked up in the boat when you come back from the scrap dealer so that was uh, Bob's dive alone Bob went down to 90 to 100 feet I think of that on that day I followed him as number two diver um, quite a while after and Bob had cut quite a lot of copper pipe and now we had the task of bundling it all together tying it up with a nylon rope ready to escort it to the surface where Paul Raymond struggling like hell the pullers weighted this copper pipe up single-handed well the fact was he couldn't we had to leave it in suspension below the boat at about 30 feet and uh, of course, Bob and I could not help him because we had to do decompression. Now, this comes to the next hazard. Um, we hadn't calculated that uh, this was not a club dive. In club dives at that depth, uh, decompression is fairly consistent. We knew the, tide, the, the, the uh, decompression tables. But in this case, we had suddenly remembered that we had not calculated into the equation the question of using more energy. When you're cutting with a hacksaw, you're not only using more energy, you're consuming more air to do so, and consuming more nitrogen absorption into the bloodstream. And so the nitrogen absorption was bound to be higher than a normal club, uh, you know, uh, uh, dive of, of no, no energy other than just swimming. So we hadn't calculated this. Um, certainly Bob hadn't calculated it. And that was the problem. Raymond uh, was very bright enough to drop over a shot line um, with a spray air bottle and a breathing valve attached. So Bob was able to run out of air almost completely, even though he went down with 100 cubic feet on his back, two big bottles, two twin 50s. And uh, he was very tired, I could see that. And he lay, he sort of floated there, hanging onto the shot line with the spare bottle in his mouth, the breathing valve in his mouth, and he did quite a lot of decompression. I forget how much he did. We didn't have a watch. I think Bob was calculating it by just sheer, well, luck, of nothing else. And uh, I did my decompression fairly easily, and I got on board Aquanaut. By the way, we'd fixed up by this time a nice diving ladder um, so we could climb up, take our fl flippers off and climb up the diving ladder even with our, our air bottles on our back. So it was a very convenient way of boarding the boat. Could never have done that otherwise. So we'd made that, so especially for that purpose. So I got on board the boat and of course the next thing I did was the, was the last thing I should have done. I started to use a lot of exercise, a lot of energy, pulling up this copper pipe. And of course, that's the worst thing I should have done after decompression. Because if there's any bubbles in the body, in the fat tissue or in the joints of the body, they're going to move if you start doing exercise and could move to the brain and of course, cause the bends and, and of course, even a cerebral hemorrhage. So we were taking big risks without actually realising it. 
Um, it wasn't until we got Bob aboard later, he was quite well. Um, he was clearly very, very tired. And we got, got aboard, and the three of us managed eventually to pull the scrap on board Aquanaut, and uh, we, were, we were okay. I reckon Bob did about 20 to 25 minutes decompression, um, so I think he probably thought that uh, he was all right. So at the end of the day, um, just to remind us, it was a, a learning curve, uh, which would, would be essential to factor in in the future when we uh, look at the decompression equations and avoid decompression sickness and, of course, the bends. In the event, Bob seemed all right, and uh, he was all right with, I think, the sufficient decompression, and so was I. It was very hard work, and what I remember most was both of us being so very, very tired. So that was our first deep dive wreck on the Heliops to salvage. In the next episode comes the realization that we needed to acquire hydraulic winch. And of course, the lifting of salvage by hand became out of the question. So we did this at high cost. This will follow our salvage dive on the north coast of Land's End, our wonderful wreck, and how much copper we salvaged with some of our friends from Oxford Branch. <laughs>